So we're uh, cracking on through our series of Jesus and real life, and um, we've been looking at all sorts of different things. I'm not going to try and reel off the list after my um, inability to remember all things I'd preached on the other week, but um, we've been trying to actually think, well, what are the things that that dominate our day-by-day lives, the real stuff, Um, not simply some theological concepts, but what are the things that... That's right, Carl, I'm going off. Um, What are the things that uh, that dominate who we are and, uh, and our lives? So, um, do turn with me to page 1077, if you will, and uh, we're going to um, look at um, another thing, if you like, another um, aspect of real life um, together. I'm just going to... It seems to me that we can talk about all sorts of things. Uh, we talked about shopping, we talked about work, we talked about childhood. Um, but there is, to use a massively overused um, expression, there is the elephant in the room when it comes to real life. Uh, and, and that is um, our own mortality. Um, uh, Jesus um, doesn't shy away from talking about death. Uh, and it seems to me that it wasn't something that we should shy away from talking about either. Uh, we ought to ask the question, well, what does Jesus' life his words, the way that he acted. What does it say about the fact that for all of us, it is an absolute certainty? Both that we will experience bereavement and grief, and some of us are in the middle of that now, um, but also that we will experience it ourselves. Now, uh, there are lots of reasons not to preach on it. Um, it feels a bit of a heavy subject, and uh, I've been joking with various people, maybe a, a bit of um, unnecessary levity, saying, well, you may want to go out to children's groups. Um, but uh, it's important. It's part of real life. I guess that I do have some caution. Um, and you might even say a little bit of trepidation in talking about it. Caution, because to misquote Alistair Campbell, we don't do death in general in our society. One writer put it like this. Death has been called the new obscurity, uh, the nasty thing which no polite person nowadays will talk about in public. We'll show it on film in graphic detail, but, but it's not the sort of thing you talk about at a dinner party. It's not the sort of thing you talk about over a coffee. It's not the sort of thing you chat about. It's not part of our normal discourse. And so there is a caution in me of of simply launching into it. Um, We have to sort of recognize and just own the fact it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. We're not used to conversation about the subject. But I don't just feel caution. I feel a certain amount of trepidation because, of course, in a gathering of um, even this size, there will be some of us for whom... Right now, today, death isn't something we're just thinking about, something that we're interested in the concept of or the theology of. Death is something we feel about. And my experience um, over the years of talking with people who have been recently bereaved as I prepare to take a funeral um, has taught me always to warn people of two things, which fit, I think, with both my caution and my trepidation. The first thing I always warn people is, Please don't take it personally when your very best friend may cross the road to avoid speaking to you. It's not that they don't love you. It's not they don't care that you've just been bereaved. They are just so terrified of getting it wrong, of saying the wrong thing. And time and again, people have come back to me and gone, no, you were right. People don't want to talk about it. They're terrified of me suddenly. But it's also true to say that the feelings that come along with bereavement are as utterly various as we are. 
And so I always warn people, please don't compare yourself to anybody else. Please don't look at how somebody else is reacting. Even if you're both related in the same way to somebody who's, who's died, actually we're all so different. Some people experience grief as a sort of visceral rage. Others experience grief as a sort of slow-burning despair. For many others, the first thing that hits us when we're bereaved is just a numb disbelief. So I suppose the most important thing I want to say as we launch in is to say to you, please don't hear me as trying to tell you how you should feel about death. You will feel how you feel. I will feel how we feel. That's how it is. That's to do with who we are as people, our background, our baggage, the circumstances, our character type. We're not coming to Jesus for a straitjacket. We're coming to him for some wisdom. We're coming to him for some light on what can feel a very dark subject. We're coming to him, actually in this case in John 11, not so much simply to hear what he says about something, but to see him experience something. See, in John 11 which is an incredibly pivotal moment in the Gospels. Uh, For John, John 11 is that fulcrum on which the whole story um, rests. Because from John 11 onwards, two things happen. One is that from that moment onwards, Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. The next thing that happens in chapter 12 after this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is what we now call Palm Sunday, the the beginning of, um, of Holy Week. Uh, the the, the arrival in Jerusalem. This is the beginning of Jesus' travelling towards his own death. But the other thing that happens that you see a little bit later in chapter 11 is that this is the incident that is the button, if you like, pressed that starts the plot to kill Jesus. The irony, I don't think, is lost on John. In the very act of giving life, Jesus effectively signs his own death warrant. And the reason that I want to come to John 11 is not simply because it's a a raising from the dead and I want to talk about death. It's that Jesus experiences the bereavement of a friend and he experiences the grief of two other friends. Uh, And I want very simply to start by looking at two feelings that Jesus seems to exhibit, two attitudes that Jesus seems to have towards death and ask how on earth he can feel both of these things, because they seem on the face of it to be completely contradictory to one another. So let me start by by reading a little bit of John 11, um, page 1077. We're not going to read the whole of John 11, sadly, um, although that would be worth doing at some point. Now, a man named Lazarus, as I say, page 1077, was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, stayed where he was for two more days. Now there follows in the next few verses this discussion between Jesus and his friends. The disciples are incredibly worried. They're afraid that if they head towards Bethany, which is itself only two miles from Jerusalem, it's all going to kick off. He's already been stoned and escaped miraculously in one village. 
they're beginning to sense that there is this rising sense of discontent against him. They're, they're beginning to pick up, probably, the rumblings from the, the ruling authorities. This man needs got rid of. And they say, please don't go there. Why are we going to Bethany? But before we get to that, we have this incident so odd that even John points it out. He doesn't just sort of leave it hanging. He wants to make sure we get it. He says, on the one hand, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This wasn't just anyone, though, heaven knows, Jesus seemed to care about everybody that he met. These were personal, well-loved friends. Lazarus is sick and dying. Mary and Martha going out of their minds with um, fear, desperate for Jesus to come. And John says he loved them, and then verse 6, yet... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. It's completely the opposite of what we would expect. You may have even had um, the occurrence, but if you haven't, you'd be able to imagine it. That that moment where you drop everything, you get in the car, and you floor it. You get somewhere because you need to be with somebody. Why doesn't Jesus move? We have to ask it. John lays it before us. Yet. Now, the first thing we have to just cross off the list, is the thought that maybe Jesus is sort of deliberately delaying so that Lazarus dies so that he can show God's power. But actually later on in John 11, we see the lie of that, because actually when Jesus does arrive, and he's only about a day away from Bethany, when Jesus does arrive, some, we work it out, two days plus one, three days after this message has arrived, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. In other words, even before Jesus hears the message, about Lazarus, he's dead. So this isn't about that, but it must be about something else. I think that the reasoning in Jesus' mind, and it shows us a little bit later in John 11, is that given that Lazarus has died, and this this is going to make us squirm a bit, okay? I'm just going to say it how it is. Jesus deliberately arrives late enough for it to be really clear and obvious and unequivocally remarkable that God's power is seen in raising him from the dead. You see, there was a superstition at the time, which is really important to know. The superstition amongst many um, believing Jews at the time, as far as we can tell, was that when somebody died, their spirit hovered around the body for two or three days until it began to decay. And of course, in that warm climate, um, people were buried basically the same day or worse the day after, um, and you then didn't go near the body because it was warm. And, And It would all happen very quickly. Jesus deliberately arrives after even the superstition could have imagined that maybe the spirit was ready to come back in. Because he needs them to know. This isn't simply a remarkable healing. This is something different. This is raising from death to life. Now, you know, whatever we think of that reasoning, the remarkable thing here, and I think the point, is that Jesus' first attitude to death is that he isn't afraid of it. He isn't panicked by it. He doesn't act without thinking in the face of it. There isn't the sort of quick put on the emergency blue lights and run. There is something in Jesus, not cold and calculating, but calm as he faces the death of a friend. Now, don't for one moment imagine that means Jesus doesn't care. We're going to come in just a second 
to the other half of Jesus' attitude, which is the opposite of unemotional, which is the opposite of unengaged, which is, which is full of pathos and, and, and emotion. But right now we have to recognise that he isn't so overawed by death that he can't think and act. There is something in Jesus that refuses to let death sit on the throne. There is something in Jesus that refuses to, to see death as calling the tune, as holding the whip, as being the one that defines him. And we have to ask the question, why? We'll come back to that. Now let's chase the rest of the story through. Jesus does eventually um, head to Bethany, verse 17. On his arrival, this is some three days as far as we can tell after he got the message, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Now, just as an aside, it's really interesting to see how these two sisters react to grief differently. Martha's up for a fight. I think she's cross at Jesus. She's let down by Jesus. She's disappointed in Jesus. If you'd been here, she said. If you'd been here. She, she doesn't say if you'd come more quickly, because she recognises it was too late. But if you'd been here, surely, Jesus, you could have known. You've healed people. You, why weren't you here? You're our friends. It's all out there. There's anger and there's, there's passion and there's... She's got to say it. Mary, on the other hand, stays at home. She does talk to Jesus a little bit later on, but right now she stays at home. She's the quieter one. Do we think that one of them grieved more over, over Lazarus? Not a bit of it. It's what we experience in our own lives, that people react to death differently. We have to let other people, even sometimes our nearest and dearest, to react differently. Some of us are all out there. Some of us, it all goes on inside here. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he doesn't favour one over the other. He doesn't rebuke Mary for her passivity at this moment, nor does he rebuke Martha for her sort of activism and her, her, her anger. He relates to them as they are. He receives them as they are. He blesses them as they are. He takes seriously how they feel. Jesus is never anything short of compassionate and loving. We come to him as we are, as we feel, sometimes with anger, sometimes with despair, sometimes with disappointment, sometimes simply with numb shock, and Jesus takes us as we are and responds to us as we are. He always did, and he always does. Now, we'll come back to what he then says to Martha and this little bit of theology that they do together in the midst of a pastoral conversation, in a sense. But I think we've got to race on towards the end of the story because we've then got to see how Jesus reacts at the tomb. If we say, on the one hand, he's seemingly calm or at least not overawed or cowed by death, we have to see as well his emotion. Verse 32. Mary does eventually arrive. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's a very famous verse, that. um, Verse 35. Shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. It's actually the verse before that, though, or a couple of verses before that, that's almost more remarkable. Because Jesus not only weeps, he does what the English translations tend to flatten out into being deeply troubled. Actually, what does it say? He was deeply moved. And I think all the commentators would say that every English translation basically drops the ball at this point. Um, And apparently, um, Andreas will be particularly glad to hear this, the, the German translations are much better on this particular phrase or word. Because actually, um, this word that says deeply moved, in the word that um, John used, which is a Greek word, really doesn't mean that very English stiff upper lip, sort of deeply moved moment. Actually, the word is used of animals. It's particularly used of horses when they snort with fear or anger. It is a it's more of a growl or a grunt or a groan. It's a, it's a very strong um, non-verbal reaction to something that makes you angry. This is deep anger. The word is used elsewhere in the Gospels, not just by John. It's not just he's not plucked it out of midair. Matthew uses it, and I think Mark and Luke use it. And it's always used, as far as I can tell, when Jesus confronts sickness and death. In other words, there is something about the brokenness of our world that doesn't simply make Jesus feel a bit sad. It doesn't simply make him grieve his friend's grief and his friend's death. It makes him angry. He resents it. It's wrong. Actually, one of the things that we need to hear is that when you and I confront the brokenness of this world, whether it's in what we're talking about here, bereavement and death and loss, or whether it's in all the other ways in which we meet it, in sickness, in relationships, in, in our working life, in disappointment, when we meet something that makes us weep, when we meet something that just in our guts twists us up and we just, we want to yell and sometimes we do yell. It's not right. It's not fair. The world is not meant to be like this. Jesus is alongside us saying, you're right. He, he growls alongside us. He yells alongside us. This is not the way God made things. Death is a usurper, or at least a wannabe usurper to the one who actually sits on the throne. Death is a blasphemy against the God who is the God of life and the God of light. Sickness, brokenness, is a blasphemy against the God who made things and said they were very good. So actually, far from Christians having to do the stiff upper lip thing and going around saying, well, I I feel quite moved, but I, I trust in God and everything's okay, Here's the Jesus who, yes, was calm enough in the face of death to still think, who was confident enough not to be cowed by it, and yet his emotions ran so deep that it was like he was an animal at that moment. This death 
as you try to usurp the very throne of God. It's not as it's meant to be. And I think that is so important for us to hear. Because we want to encourage one another. We want to pray for one another. We want to be confident and and trust in in Jesus. And we know that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We know that Jesus, a little bit earlier on, we're going to come back to this, says, I am the resurrection and the life. We want to say, I'm a confident Christian and I, I have faith in Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And then something knocks us down. And, and the, the guilt of feeling like we feel, that the fear that, gosh, maybe it's all gone wrong. Come back to Jesus. Come and look at how he reacts. And isn't that amazing? He still reacts this way, even though he knows that in a few seconds' time, he's going to be wiping it away. He still reacts like this, even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? Because death is a blasphemy against the God of life. Because sickness is a, is a brokenness through the heart of a creation that was very good, that was perfect. It's not the way it's meant to be. So how do we bring these two things together? How is it that Jesus helps us to deal <coughs> me, with a world that is, at times, full of joy and brightness and light, where we know at a sort of gut level how things are meant to be, and yet where we deal with death? and loss, and bereavement, and sickness, and brokenness. How does he help us with that? Well, I think very briefly, it's worth going back to this conversation he has, if you like, in between the two ends of this story, with Martha. Listen to what he says. Verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then I always imagine that she slightly catches herself on at that point. It's almost like she catches herself being rude to Jesus. I think she's, I think she's run out in a, you know, she's cross with him. She's disappointed in him. And it's almost like she catches herself on and then goes, but, but, but I know that even now God will give you what you ask. You know, don't give up on me. Do something, Jesus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what's going on here is Jesus knows that Martha knows that there is going to be a resurrection. That was, uh, Jews believed that. That was from Daniel, the prophet, from Isaiah, the prophet. Most of them, not all of them, the Sadducees didn't believe it, but most of them believed that one day God would draw a line under history, that there would be no more death and no more dying, no more sickness, no more pain, no more loneliness, uh, no more brokenness. She looked forward to that. But you know, and I know, that a theological truth about something that we haven't experienced yet doesn't get us very far in the middle of grief. So Martha basically goes, thanks. I sort of knew that. And Jesus is so gracious. Because he then draws her in. And what he says to her is, that which you look forward to in the future, which you're confident about in the future, can be known and made real to you in the present because I am the reality of the future come in to your life now. Listen to what he says. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, we get to taste a little bit, only a little bit, but a little bit of the life of the world to come through Jesus in the present life. Now, for Mary and Martha and 
remarkably and ultimately for Lazarus, tasting a bit of the future meant, at that moment, being raised from the dead. That's what Jesus was going to do. He was going to walk to the tomb, roll the stone aside, smell that actually the body hadn't decayed. Maybe that's what Jesus was praying for when he was in, uh, where he was waiting for those two days. And call him out. Maybe the most dramatic moment, aside from the resurrection of Jesus itself in the Gospels. But you know, Lazarus was going to die again. C.S. Lewis makes this wonderful comment, a little bit of humour, I guess, in the midst of it. He just says, I, I feel a bit sorry for Lazarus. You know, all of us have to die once. Actually, Lazarus is one of the few people, and it's true, that had to die twice. I, I don't know how Lazarus felt about that. But the point was that what Jesus did in raising him from the dead wasn't make everything okay forever in their life. It gave them a taste. It gave them a few more years. It gave them a a glimpse of light in the darkness. It gave them a sniff of what's to come. Because he is what's to come. He is the resurrection and the life. And by his spirit, he comes to be with us today. So it seems to me that when we look at what Jesus does in the face of death, there are two things that we might pursue. One is to be much less afraid of our emotions in the face of the awfulness of some of life. It doesn't mean that everything has gone wrong to the extent of God has departed, that the world is falling apart, that our hope is in vain. It is simply how it should be because we should never get to a point where we simply accept life's just a mess. We are meant to see death and sickness as usurpers, at least wannabe usurpers. God is on the throne. He's made things good. Death and sickness are not how it was meant to be. The world is broken. And we should be angry at that. We should be weeping at that. It should make us feel, not just think. The Christian faith is not a stiff, upper lip faith. It should be a deeply felt, passionate faith that meets the world as it really is. But it's true as well to say that Jesus had such confidence in the life of the world to come, such confidence in who was on the throne, that even in the face of death, he would not be cowed by it. He would not be ultimately afraid of it. He would not be beaten into submission by it, because he knew that ultimately life, stronger than death, would triumph. He looked forward maybe 10 days to the day that he would be nailed to a cross, that he would suffer and die, and that he would rise again from the dead, not once in order to die again, but once for all time. I want to read you a little bit of a very ancient um, English poem. It's one I'm sure some of you will know very well. It's only a few lines uh, by um, a poet called John Donne. It's Holy Sonnet uh, 10. It's worth a read of the whole of it. Listen to these remarkable words. Death, be not proud though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, 
poor death, nor canst thou kill me. And then he goes on. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Let's be still for a moment. just want to give a few moments to reflect. The whole point of talking about death is that it reaches really deep inside us to our emotions. And depending on where you are in your life, depending on what you've experienced recently or in your history, depending on what you and I fear about the future, this may have stirred up all sorts of things. So if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we need to take how we feel seriously and simply bring how we feel to our Heavenly Father. It doesn't need to be an articulated prayer. It doesn't need to be a theological treatise. We simply let him in on how it is we feel about the brokenness of our world, about the mess we experience, about the loss we sometimes feel. We simply come as we are. And not to replace that, but alongside it, or in the middle of it, we want as well simply to slip our hand into the hand of God. Knowing that even death shall die. That death doesn't have the final word. That he who is the resurrection and the life has promised that as we trust in him, death is not the end. Life is, and the beginning of all things. Lord Jesus, please go on moving amongst us by your spirit. Bring light into dark places where we're afraid. Will you bring trust in you? Where we're sad, will you continue to comfort us? Where we're angry, may we hear your groaning alongside us. And will you so fill us with yourself that you will give us the confidence of stepping into this world, seeing its glory and its beauty and its joy, and refusing to be cowed and afraid of its brokenness. Thank you, Jesus, that one day you will come again. Thank you, Jesus, that one day you will draw a line under history and there will be no more sickness or death or dying or loneliness or pain. And as we long for that day, we ask that even this day we will taste something of the life of the world to come by your spirit at work in us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.